Welcome to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry, presented by Boston Women in Media and Entertainment, sponsored by Tech Help Boston. We all have stories to tell, and when we tell them, we pass along wisdom. In the spotlight, a woman whose story is so unique, so extreme, so adventurous, so faith-filled, you would be hard-pressed to find another woman quite like her. She describes herself as a wife, a mother, a pastor, a survivalist, a long-distance runner, a rock climber, a skier, and an MMA fighter. But that's not all. She's a crafter, a knitter, a seamstress, a chef, a beekeeper, a horsewoman, a chicken lady, a gardener, a children's book author, an illustrator, a speaker, an international traveler. And she is the force behind Three Match Creations, which is based in the little town of Clinton, Massachusetts. This is the story of Heather Cook. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Candy. I'm thoroughly exhausted from that description. <laughs> you grew up in the wilderness, literally off the grid in Montana. Can you paint us a picture and tell us what that was like? I always say that it wasn't the end of the world, but you could see the end of the world from there. We lived in a tiny cabin on the side of a beautiful river, and on the other side of the river were the Canadian Rockies, just as far as you could see. It was like you were a little island of humanity in the middle of nowhere. My mother cooked three meals a day on a wood stove. We raised our own food. We canned. We preserved. We dried. It was all about just surviving. We had horses one time. This is a true story. In, in, in the winter of 88, which was one of the worst winters in the history of Montana, we got snowed in and my dad had to ride the horse 12 miles to the nearest telephone to make a phone call. And I just thought everybody lived like that. But I found out later that they didn't, in fact. What was it like for you to find out that the rest of the world didn't live like that? I felt very sorry for them because I felt like it was such a privileged life. I, I loved it so much. It was so much a part of my identity and the resources that I had that I just couldn't believe that nobody else had had that growing up. Did you go to school? I didn't. I was what I like to call unschooled. Not that I didn't have plenty of learning opportunities. My parents were not ignorant. They both have higher educations. And my mom is actually a school teacher by trade, but we lived in the middle of the woods. They provided so many learning opportunities for us. Our house was full of books and just experiences and travels that we, we, we got to have. However, my mom just believed that kids would learn on their own and that the natural curiosity of a child would drive them to their own education. And so she let us dictate our own learning. My first day in any kind of education was my first day in college. So there's a story about you taking three matches into the woods to see how long you could survive. Can you tell us that story? This is a big part of what I believe. And I think it comes a lot from, from my childhood, from my upbringing is that we don't need as much as we think we need. What we need is the will to survive, the power of our mind, and our faith to just get us through pretty much anything. So one of my favorite things was to take just three matches, the Strike Anywhere matches, and see how long I could survive in the woods. 
if I could build a fire, then I could boil my water. And if I could drink that water, then I would have enough energy to go forage for food, et cetera, et cetera, and build myself out of the woods. And I've used that throughout my life so many times. Just ask myself, in this situation, what are my matches? Wow. Okay. So how old were you when you started doing this? I would say probably about six years old. That's when I would really just go out and kind of see how long I could make it. It's mind-boggling to me because I'm thinking about my own daughter, Colleen, and I'm thinking of her coming to me at six saying, okay, mom, I'll see you later. I got my three matches and I'm going out into the woods. And I'm guessing that's exactly what you said to your mom. It's pretty much how it went down. And my mother, I think, probably had more of an eye on me than I knew. But they weren't negligent parents by by any means, but my mother and my father both just believed in creating independence in their children and letting them take on risks and situations and gauging that and going forward with that. I have to think that there was a reason why your parents decided they wanted to go off the grid and raise a family there. I think they were also out-of-the-box thinkers. I know that they both were unconventional, both of them. And I do believe they very much wanted to combat modern society. And they wanted to give their children a totally unique life. And I think they believed that the kind of person that they would raise in in a place that was so independent from regular culture would be a very authentic and solid person. And that's what they set out to do. You know what, though, Heather, this feels lonely to me. And yet you're laughing, so I guess it wasn't to you. Was there magic in it? I thought it was wonderful. I was not lonely at all. I, I think that's where a lot of my creativity and curiosity came from. Because I was so understimulated, and as you would imagine, I, there was no electricity, there was no TV. I, I haven't watched The Wizard of Oz. I've never seen it in my life. All these classic things that I think people experience. Like, they, you haven't seen No, I haven't. I and had, yet you survived. I did. <laughs> but I had the woods and the animals and beauty all around me. And, and it was a constant stimulation and a constant inspiration. And when I learned to read, which was at 12 years old, I was an avid reader and books were my friends. How did you learn to read? I taught myself. I How just, did that work? You know, my mom went over the sounds of what letters made early on. We had these little flashcards because I had asked her. I said, I think I want to learn how to read. She didn't really do this until I had said, I really want to learn to read. And we went over the sounds, the phonics. It just clicked one day. I, I just saw the words and heard the sounds, and I understood. And then you devoured it. I devoured it. What I was, books do you remember reading? I remember reading Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace at 16. What? <laughs> the whole thing? The whole thing. Because everybody had said, oh, that's a difficult book to read. And, of course, if it's a challenge, I just wanted to do it. So I took it on, and I thought it was absolutely incredible. But I loved the Laura Ingalls Wilder series oh, yeah. because I identified so much with her spirit and with her almost rebellion in a way, but her tenacity is just survival. I still read those books to my kids avidly. So I am guessing that you learned early on about self-confidence, self-endurance, inner strength, reliance, all that stuff. What were the greatest lessons of the wilderness for you? One is that you don't need as much as you think you need. And that the power of the mind is the strongest resource you have. And in my opinion, it's also your greatest obstacle. Because when you're in the woods and your mind starts playing tricks on you, 
that's when your survival is in jeopardy. And I find that also true in life, that when your mind gives up on something, you're done. But if your mind decides to do it, it doesn't matter what your physical struggles are. It doesn't matter what you have in your way. If your mind has decided to do it, it's as good as done. That's probably one of the biggest lessons. The other thing that I think the wilderness has taught me is that there are different ways of doing things. If you go out and you try and it fails and you try something else and that works, it's kind of this discovery of you don't have to look at the problem one way. You can have different solutions for the same problem. I think that's really helped me in my coping throughout my life and my experiences. Somewhere in there, there is also a deep sense of capability. When you don't depend on other people for resources or for what you need, but you just go out and you do it all alone, it creates this sense of capability that you kind of feel like you could do anything. What does it mean then to be brave? And did you ever have to be brave in any of these circumstances? I'm going to guess that you did. What is bravery? I think that bravery can be a lot of things. I don't have a lot of fear. And yes, there were times where I think I had to be brave you know, there was a bear who tried to break into our house once. I remember that story. A big whoa, 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 whoa. I need to hear more about this. There's a bear at the door. What do we do now? Uh, my mother was an incredible cook and she had baked cookies and the bear was down in the river fishing and I guess had decided to rather have chocolate chip cookies than uh, fish. And <laughs> he came up to the house. There's a huge silverback grizzly, which they're really big. I mean, when they stand on their feet, they're like 10 feet tall. They're massive. He wanted into the house, and so he went up to the kitchen window, and it was a big like picture window, and he was pushing on the window. And I remember being more amused than actually afraid. But my mother got some pots and pans and like made a lot of noise, and and it wasn't deterred. It came over to the living room window and was like pushing on the living room window, and it eventually went away. But I don't really remember being scared because I remember thinking, oh, my mom has pots and pans. That'll be fine. You know, <laughs> it was like you just use what you have on hand. Tell us what it was like to leave the grid and see the rest of the world living in such a different way. You know, I think another thing that the wilderness gave me was a deep sense of curiosity because things are never what they appear to be. You know, you look at a leaf and you say, oh, it's a leaf. But when you turn it over, you see that there's like a bunch of little aphids that grow on that and the veins of the leaf and just the beautiful detail that's there. So when I left the woods, it was just a world of curiosity. I wasn't afraid because it was very much like just turning over a leaf and looking on it and saying, wow, this is how everybody else lives. This is how the rest of the world is, you know, and just going out and I was hungry for it. I wanted to see it all. I still want to see it all. I just, I wanted to do it all. I wasn't even a little bit afraid. It was just so exciting. You have traveled to 56 countries, yeah. many times all by yourself. I'm guessing it was just what you said. You had to see this great big world. Yes. I'm guessing things, some you liked, some you didn't. I think it's the greatest education to travel because not only does it teach you about the world, it teaches you about yourself. All you have to do to get rid of self-pity is to travel just a little bit and to be grateful for the platter of paradigm, the platter of success, the platter of opportunities that is given to you that some people just 
never get the chance to have. And that was a big wake-up call for me to say, I have had my difficulties, I have had my struggles, but there is always somebody who's below you. We can always reach out and try to pull people up and do something. So that was a big education for me. I love traveling. Another thing I think that from my background, I knew I could survive. So I didn't really have a lot of the same fears that I think a lot of people do when they're traveling. You know, like, oh, I don't know the language. Well, I don't know how to talk to a bear either. So, you know, let's just go just out there. Just some pants together. I now know the answer to that. How did this path lead to becoming a pastor? And talk to me about your faith. My pastoring, I think, comes from another big aspect of me. And that is that I just have a deep passion for people. When I see people, I love them. It is just inherent in me. Like if I see somebody who I have never seen before crying, I will go over and like hug them because I feel something in me that's pulled to them. And I think it's just in my DNA. I do believe it's God-given. So there was always just a great call on my life for people. And I always say as a pastor, my job is to just love people. And that's what it is. That is what I believed fit fit that calling was to be a pastor. Well, you are one of 150 male pastors. Talk to me a little bit about that. And and specifically, talk to me about your faith and your community. Please support our sponsors. They make this show possible. More than 30,000 families and businesses have trusted TechHelpBoston.com since the year 2000. Dave Elmazian, president of TechHelpBoston, with the reasons why. We like to establish a relationship with our customers, and the best way to do that is see them in their natural setting, so to speak, and that's in their home. We come to you, we work with you on your equipment in a setting that's comfortable for you, and also we can test better that way, because if you have a printing problem or whatever, and we bring it to a shop, it may work great in the shop, but it might not work in your home. So this way we know for sure everything is working the way that it should. TechHelpBoston.com. Their experts will come to your home or office to fix your computer same day, next day, and weekends too. Visit TechHelpBoston.com. That's TechHelpBoston.com. I come from a very conservative traditional church, the Seventh Adventist Church. It's very rare to have a woman in ministry. In fact, our church is in great discussion about this right now. I was only one of three of probably 250 graduates from our program when we came out of college. And in the North American division, when I came out, there was only 103 female pastors of a very large denomination. I guess it just didn't occur to me that that would be a problem. However, I did have a lot of people tell me it was going to be a problem. In fact, I remember interviewing coming out my senior year and somebody saying to me, you know, you really shouldn't be a pastor. You're going to have obstacles every step of the way. You just, you don't fit the mold. You don't look like a pastor. People are going to have a hard time accepting you. It's going to be a a difficult position. And I just remember thinking, well, that's silly. (laughs) Like, why would I not be a pastor just because somebody else hasn't been a pastor? And I think adversity and someone telling you, you can't do something is your ticket to, well, watch me. Yeah, that's pretty much it. It's a, that's the way to get me to do something is to say it can't be done. I have my whole career dealt with prejudice, actually even calculated attempts to slander, to get me to leave my job. Lots of comments and pretty much every time I speak, there's an email that's sent somewhere in regards to why do we have this woman in the pulpit You're here. I'm here. (laughs) You mentioned the word pulpit. Yes. How does that feel to stand in the pulpit? 
I don't feel worthy to stand in the pulpit. When I get up there and I look out and I think, I struggle so much too. And every sermon I preach, I have promised myself it would only be something that is practical and applicable to how to make life better. And so when I preach, I'm speaking about myself, and it's incredibly vulnerable. And I don't feel like I know, but I want to be in the journey with people as we ask the questions on how to get through things. So that's how I feel when I preach. I feel very inadequate, but I feel grateful to be there. What is your message to the world about our present culture, about materialism, about consumerism, and about the importance of connection and relationships? I think we have to educate resources again. You know, just like I went out into the woods and I used three matches to survive. When I started Three Match Creations, it was my solution to complaining about how our culture is disconnected. It's no longer educating creativity and faith and resources to our young people like it used to. So I was tired of complaining about it and not doing anything. My message to the world would be is that we have to intentionally seek to give our kids these resources again. I think in the last six years of dealing specifically with troubled teens, because well, just teenagers in general, I've noticed a massive increase in mental illness and emotional instability, a disconnection, in isolation and suicide. I realize we aren't giving our children those matches anymore. We're not giving them mm. the resources anymore. We've taken so much of those hands-on, practical, therapeutic methods of creativity and education of, of skills, like auto mechanics and uh, sewing and home ec, like right out of our schools. We've given them cell phones and we say, hey, we've opened up communication, yet they don't know how to communicate. They don't know how to look at somebody in the eye and have a conversation. They don't know how to go to somebody for help. So we've actually taken those resources away from our kids in many ways. We have to be intentional about re-educating those resources into society. And to do that, all you need is to make a relationship. All you need is to share a skill. All you need is to connect a generation to an older generation, and you'll have the answer. And tell your stories. And tell your stories. Yeah. That's huge. Tell me about Three Matches Creations, obviously inspired by the three matches that you used to bring into the wilderness. Who are you? What do you do? What is your mission? We're multifaceted, I would say. My mission is to reconnect those resources, for sure. As I look at my own life, my major resources have been my faith, my creativity, and my relationships. It's really gotten me through everything that I've had to, to go through at three matches, what I want to do, I, I realized the best way to expand my influence is to encourage and support others because I have my circle of influence, but somebody else has another circle of influence that I'll never touch. And the ripples go on and, and on. on, and on. <laughs> yeah. I started looking for people who were doing something that made the world better, that was out of the box. And what you find is that people don't have a support system for the out of the box vision because it doesn't fit the structure. That's right. And so I wanted to create the structure in order to help people get these things off the ground, expand their influence, do their passion, because I think when things have a heart and things have passion, that's when you have the greatest impact. And I think it has to be a grassroots movement for change, because I do believe our culture is, is kind of falling apart, but we have to have a movement for change and not let that happen. It's a collaborative in which people can come and they can use the resources of the collaborative for 
an extended period of time or a very short period of time, but we have a business manager. We have physical space if you need physical space in a very creative, beautiful studio. We also have shared advertising, shared networking. My role is to be a nurturer. I ask people, what is keeping you from doing this? And then, you know, let's talk about those gremlins that freeze you. Let's talk about what you have in order to get through those. And so it's a support system for out-of-the-box thinkers that are making a difference. But it's also something that really empowers creative initiatives. One of those is our matchstick market, which came out of that. It's a farmer's maker's market, and it's exactly what you're trying to do. It's trying to break down consumerism by creating a place where people who have stories for what they're selling can sell. Because I think the re-education is going to need to include those stories. Because if I know that some mother who's at home is making this beautiful jewelry to sell, I would rather support that than Amazon, right? So if I have that story and that face and that relationship, I can re-educate what consumerism has done to our culture, which has taken the stories out of why we do things, why we make things. Did becoming a mother change you? I know you have twin daughters. Absolutely. How did it change you, Heather? (sighs) Completely. You know, one of the major ways it changed me, I grew up in a very legalistic and authoritative home, abusive. My father was that way. And a lot of it was spiritually abusive. He had great intentions, but he couldn't ever quite get to where he wanted to in his freedom from guilt. And so he inflicted performance upon his kids. I always had this understanding of love, I would say God's love, as he loves me, but he would love me more if, you know, X, Y, or Z, if I wasn't this way, or if I was less rebellious if I didn't talk back or if I performed better. And having kids (laughs) was a total re-education of what unconditional love is. And I always say, I said, you know, my girls, they could grow up to be like the cooked twin serial killers, you know, and just do something crazy. But they would still be my kids and I would still love them. And that was so transformative for how I thought about the power of love and the power of even divine love and how I now share it with other people. It was absolutely transformative. Your husband is also terminally ill, yet he has lived with brain cancer for nine years. Yes. What has been central to his survival? You know, we don't spend a lot of time on cancer, actually. I mean, it's our life. But we don't spend a lot of time and energy focusing on it. We just go forward and we just take the next day and we've prioritized things in a way that when and and if he goes, we will have lived life hard. And so that's, I think, one of the biggest keys to, to his survival and to our survival. We're very blessed for the quality of life he has. He's had three brain surgeries in the last nine years and chemo and radiation. And he's actually training for an Ironman this year. So speaking of Ironman, (laughs) you are preparing to walk the Pacific Northwest Trail. This is 1200 miles through isolated wilderness, high desert and coastline. Tell me all about it. And of course, why you're doing it. Well, I am so excited to do it. I can't wait. I'm doing it for a lot of reasons. One, I want it to be a platform to share this idea 
that we don't need as much as we think we need in order to survive, that our strongest assets are the resources that we carry within ourselves. So I'm going to do it hyperlight. I want to go with very little and I want to go as fast as possible. So you're not walking, you're running? I'm going to try to run, yes. Of course, the trail itself it doesn't lend itself I to running. I was just about to say, you're going to run when the trail lets you run, right? <laughs> yes, because it goes up and down Everest nine times in elevation gain. And the slogan of the trail is high for the views. So they just send you up everything in order to get the views. Um, wow. And it's very new to the trail system as well. So it's quite underdeveloped. So there's sometimes when you have to use orientation with the compass and you have to bushwhack. When I can run, I will run. But I do want to do it as fast as I can. I want my daughters to know that they can do anything. To me, when I think about doing this, I know it's as good as done because I know that in my mind I have decided that I will complete this. It's just going to be a platform to show the power of the mind and the very little we need to survive. How long do you think it'll take you? I'd like to do it within six weeks. Yeah. I'm holding in my hand a beautiful children's book that you have written and illustrated. It's called, What If I Can't Fly? The message is all about goals and dreams. Tell us about it. This came actually when my daughter, I was getting ready for work one day and I was looking in the mirror and she was standing behind me and she was watching me and she asked me, she said, Mommy, why do you think God made me? And it's one of those questions that you really just hope that you have the right answer for, right? And you weren't really prepared for it, so you're like a deer in the headlights. And I just said, because you're here to make the world better. And then I got to thinking about that answer. I thought, that's why we all should be here, is to make the world better. And then sometimes it's discouraging because our dreams don't go exactly how we plan. Life is so much a change to what you envision so much of the time. And so I wrote this book out of that answer that even when our dreams don't go as planned, we can always help someone else and we can make the world a better place. And sometimes our dreams are not meant just for us, but they're meant to make the world better too. So that is my answer to my daughter's question, why am I here? When an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? I'm a very much uh, take the bull by the horns kind of girl. <laughs> I'll just grab the bull and then I'll think about what to do. <laughs> or the bear. <laughs> Whatever. But, but actually, I do have a kind of a habit where I will take it on and then I will go into tunnel vision and I will ask myself, in this problem, what is just the next thing? I'm not going to think three steps down the road. I'm not going to think five steps down. That's how you sink yourself. You know, that's how you get overwhelmed. What is the next thing on my plate? And that's what I will tackle. Adversity, I think, Heather, is a great teacher. You have just shared that it wasn't easy to be your father's daughter. You've known plenty of adversity in your life. What have you learned during the darkest times in your life? And can you pass that along to someone listening to our show today? I do believe that pain is my greatest weapon as far as what it's given me for coping and for survival. There are a few things I've learned. One is that there are two things you can do with pain. You can let it make you better or you can let it make you bitter. And bitterness will close your heart and it will ruin your life. And you can't let that happen. And the best thing to do in your darkest time is to seek for forgiveness. Because when you seek for forgiveness and when you find it and when you give it, the things that have a stranglehold on you lose all of their power and they can no longer touch you. 
And for me, that is the most powerful weapon I have is forgiveness. Because as I look back on my life and the things that I have gone through, I own my story. And there's a great quote that says, if you own your story, you can write your own ending. Mm. (laughs) And you have to own your story. And to do that, you have to forgive. And you have to speak your story. I remember there was times from my childhood that it took a very long time to articulate, to speak, because I felt if I spoke the words, the monster would come out of the bed and it would kill me. (laughs) That's how Mm. it feels to speak your story for the first time when you've gone through abuse or that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But what I realized is that the more you speak those words and the more you own your story and say, this is a part of me, it did hurt me, the more you realize that that monster under the bed is just your slipper <laughs> and it's not going to get you. It's just a part of what was your story. So I have spoken those words. I have done that forgiveness. And now I'm free. I'm free. And I think that in my dark times, that's the, one of the greatest lessons is forgiveness is absolutely necessary if you are being hurt. And also that there's always hope and there's always sunshine above the clouds. And to try to find the moments where you can find the sunshine, intentionally be grateful. Be grateful for what you do have in every moment. I make a practice of thankfulness. I have a journal in my purse right now, actually, that's my thankfulness journal that I look for things to write down that I am thankful for, that I'm experiencing in my day. The mantra for this show is, if she can do it. I can do it. What do you want women hearing your story to know about empowerment and to know about what it means to survive? I think that every person has a value in them that's inherent to them that cannot be taken. And it's not circumstantial. You're a human being. You were created. You are gifted. You are purposeful. And whatever your passion is and whatever your calling is the world needs and we're not going to be completely whole until you go out there and you do it it does not matter what stands in your way if you decide in the power of your mind and in the strength of that calling to go forward and I want women everywhere to know that if you don't fit the stereotype that's okay or if you think you don't have something that's strong enough that's okay to just Go for it. Keep trying and don't take no for an answer and you'll get there. At this moment, Heather Cook, at this time in your life, what does success look like? What does it mean to you? Success means that I can make a difference in the world for better, that I can make a difference in someone's life today. And my greatest success are my children. They are the hope for my future of a better world tomorrow because I'm going to raise women who believe that they have a worth that's valuable and they're going to invest in that and they're going to put it into the world. And so that is success to me is if I can inspire that in my children and anybody I come in contact with. I want to say thank you so much for sharing what is an unbelievable story. So inspiring. And thank you so much for being on the story behind her success, Heather Cook. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a real privilege. Thanks for listening to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry. This is a series with one goal in mind, to shine the spotlight on women doing great things with their lives. We hope these weekly stories will motivate and inspire you. If you'd like to suggest someone for Candy to interview, she'd love to hear about it. 
Connect with her anytime on Facebook, Twitter, and her website, candyoterry.com. That's C-A-N-D-Y-O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. You'll find all of these links in the show notes. What's your story?